0: Welcome to Prescribing Prosperity with your hosts, John and Alex Soutsos from MedWealth Financial Services, operating through IPC Securities Corporation. In this podcast, we provide unique insights into wealth management, the psychology of financial decisions, and help listeners place the capital markets into perspective. Our aim is to help physicians, business owners, and other medical professionals to live their dreams life is to live and enjoy so we'll also cover health and lifestyle related topics such as food dining travel and unique experiences learn how global trends shape our investment strategy as we help you assemble your roadmap to prosperity
1: and welcome to the prescribing prosperity podcast with your host john and alex suits guys good to be with you again Thank you, Bill. Good to see you again. Good to see you as well. For those who uh, are new to the podcast or missed the last podcast, let me just bring you up to quick speed here. Uh, Last podcast episode, we began looking at some of the history of the stock market and the markets in general. We covered the stagflation of the 70s, Black Monday and the 87 market crash. We talked about the savings and loan crisis. And then finally, the Gulf War. And for those of you who are wondering, why in the world are we having a history class? Well, if you've been asleep for about 10 years and you just woke up, you might not have noticed that we are in a tremendously volatile time for the market. So it does make sense in that context, Alex and John, that we're you're talking about this. It's it's good to remember we the markets in many ways have been there and seen that over and over and over again. Uh, we got up to the 90s alex uh, mm-hmm. uh where do you want to pick this conversation up
2: yeah uh, thanks bill as you mentioned uh yeah we just wrapped up in the uh the early 1990s with the uh, the gulf war which occurred in uh at the end of 1990 and into 1991 and uh, at the time that the war broke out many citizens around the world were concerned about how the subsequent events were going to unfold and and what impact it would have on their daily lives and You know, fast forward to today, and many people are finding themselves in a similar situation. Mm -hmm. Um, Since our last episode, the attacks on Israel have led the nation to declare war on Hamas. The level of civilian casualties is heartbreaking. uh, And we both hope for a peaceful resolution as soon as possible. And we extend our sympathies to all those who have lost loved ones uh, in this conflict. And you know it's it's a difficult subject to to transition um, away from or try and uh, pull back into a financial context when we're talking about the uh the loss of life but uh, we're gonna try and uh, and keep things informative and uh, and try and provide some context as to how this might affect people here at home uh, here in North America I should say. So I'm going to turn it over to my dad and uh, just get his perspective you know dad, how do you foresee the Israel Hamas war impacting the financial markets in the coming weeks and and uh, the coming months, perhaps?
3: Well, th- thanks, Alexander. Um, I wish I could foresee, but I, I can't. I can only give an educated opinion. Uh, at the present time, the markets appear to be taking the events in Israel uh, within context. Uh, the only impactful uh, segment that that has shown any um changes has been the price of oil spiking up on on the monday from a week ago other than oil prices the market really is doing what it's been doing based on uh, its typical pattern at this time of year we're in the early stages of the third quarter uh, earnings reports Uh, we are in a uh, options expiry week which typically causes stocks that have run up in the preceding month to come back to earth and stocks that have been oversold in the preceding month to come back to uh, uh, closer to fair value. So at this point in time, the impacts of the the attacks on Israel um, have not been material on on the uh, capital markets. However, the potential is there for something far greater if if the scope of this war goes beyond Israel's borders. So we are closely monitoring uh, our portfolio and how it's being impacted potentially, and we'll be prepared to make modifications should uh, those be required.
2: Right, right. I think that makes sense. And uh, just to give everybody some perspective, you know, historically, when we look back at uh, at strife and war across the world and uh, and how it impacts the markets, uh, specifically the S and P five hundred. Uh, historically we've seen a uh, an average drop of about 1.1 percent in the first trading day following the outbreak of war Uh, and then the average total drop of about 4.7 percent and usually it takes about six weeks for the index to recover on average and so outside of a uh, of a few select areas that being uh, defense primarily uh, as you can imagine war generally leads to an increase in uh, in manufacture of uh, weaponry which so the Uh, Some of the defense industry uh, tends to benefit from the outbreak of war. Uh, And then uh, when it comes to uh, political strife in the uh, Middle East, that can also uh, result in impacts to oil prices, as you mentioned. So uh, those are the two primary areas that are generally affected. And what we've seen historically is it's been uh, relatively short lived in terms of the uh, the impacts to the market over here in North America. Just to supplement
3: you quickly, Alexander, uh, sorry to interrupt, Uh, common common uh, discussion that happens between us and our clients is uh, when discussing risk in the financial markets is, uh, well, what about interest rates? And uh, what about this uh, law that's about to change? Uh, what about uh, the war in Russia, Ukraine? Uh, what about this? What about that? And and something that's important for investors to understand and internalize is the risks that are plainly visible not the risks that the market is going to be impacted by it's always the risk of the unknown it's the risk of something coming out of nowhere like the attacks on israel coming out of nowhere those are the real risks to the market so those risks can never be predicted Uh, and so you always at all times have to keep that in mind as an investor the potential for a rapid pullback is always there due to unforeseen circumstances and not from risks that you plainly see in front of you or that are reported on the nightly
2: news. Right. And this for uh, everyone at home is uh, known as systemic risk. And systemic risk cannot be diversified <clears throat> away. Systemic risk mm-hmm. is something that is uh, ever present in the market and affects all companies. <clears throat> So uh, that being said, we're going to try and uh, and pull things back into our uh, history lesson and look back on uh, past financial market crises. So uh, we are now post-1991. We are transitioning over to 1994, the end of 1994, and we're going to discuss the uh, tequila crisis, uh, which occurred uh, in Mexico. And so, Dad, tell us a little bit about what happened and uh, what led to uh, this this event that would eventually uh, have impacts uh, not only in the United States and the uh, the market there, but then uh, across the world.
3: So the tequila crisis is, uh, is, a, is a currency crisis in its essence. Uh, it had to do with uh, an over-leveraging of the Mexican uh, economy uh, and an artificial uh, uh, pegging of currency uh, uh, relative to the U.S. dollar. This is common back in the 80s and 90s, as many emerging markets around the world were trying to increase their trade exports with the United States and other developed economies. And when you create a, a peg to, the, to uh, any, uh, any currency, inevitably, you need to have a vast amount of foreign currency reserves to maintain that peg. Uh, and if you don't, and you go out of balance in your domestic fiscal and monetary policies, things can unravel very rapidly. Ironically, uh, it, it is the United States that usually is the trigger for a lot of these currency crises in that the central bank is running monetary policy for the United States, but it is a de facto central banker for the rest of the world. And every time this US central bank raises interest rates, they are uh, creating a problem for countries who are trying to maintain a, a currency, a fixed currency exchange with the US dollar. This is essentially what happened in 1994. The the Central Bank of the United States increased interest rates uh, from early 1994 from three percent, effectively doubling it to six percent uh, within a period of about one year from the from early February 94 to early February 95. During this period of rising interest rates, uh, the stresses on the, on uh, Mexico to maintain their currency. Uh, peg uh, continued to rise and eventually uh, it, it collapsed and they were they were unable to sustain it and so you had a dramatic drop in the the value of the peso um, some bonds were not repaid uh, it was a a big scandal now as far as how it it affected the uh, the stock market for investors in in uh, North America the the impact was may, uh, seen primarily in the bond market. So the bond market in 1994 um, declined by I think about 20%. I'm going from memory right now. So the impact on the bond market was quite significant. Now the impact on the stock market during 1994 happened early on when the interest rates began to go up. There was a pullback of approximately 11% on the S&P 500, but it started to rebound uh, relatively quickly over a span of a few months uh, from the spring to the summer, and then it pulled back a little bit again toward the end of the year before uh, resuming its uptrend. So it didn't clear its uh, February 1994 high. It uh, cleared that and started going higher in March of 1995. So it was relatively short-lived sideways meandering for the stock market. In any year in the stock market, you're gonna get about a 10% uh, market correction Mm -hmm. from which uh, the market usually comes back from. So uh, yes, there was an impact initially, but it came back relatively quickly the bond market by contrast that uh, was much worse off
2: okay and so I, th- I think one thing that's important to clarify is is why exactly the the mexican peso fell so dramatically and so the the typical reaction is when a a, a currency like the united states when the interest rate is raised relatively quickly money flows into that into that currency because there's a higher rate of return for uh, government-denominated uh, fixed-income instruments. And so as a result, there was a greater demand for U.S. securities relative to the Mexican peso, and therefore the, uh, or Mexican securities, I should say, and therefore the peso slid. Uh, and the uh, central bank in uh, Mexico allowed the uh, peso to devalue in the neighborhood of 13 to 15% uh, at the end of 1994, while at the same time, raising interest rates by thirty-two percent on uh, on short-term rates, and so what ended up happening was after they uh, they made this move, they then allowed the uh, PEXCO to the the peso, excuse me, to uh, float freely again. Uh, roughly two days later. I,
3: I like Pexico. There's there's a there's, a, there's a, <laughs> a new term for the Mexican peso, the Pexico.
2: <laughs> sure, uh, Texaco and uh, and Pepsi just bought the uh, Mexican peso, and they're going to combine. So uh, anyway, so the, the resulting uh, free floating of the currency caused it to drop uh, nearly 50% over the, uh, the ensuing months. And the devaluation made it difficult to uh, repay significant portions of U.S. denominated debt, uh, U.S. dollar denominated debt that were held by both banks and, uh, and other companies. And so it created a, a, a mm-hmm. massive uh, economic contraction within Mexico at the time.
3: And, and this is the, the great thing about controlling your own currency. So when you are a country that you cur- controls its own currency, you have the ability to adjust uh, its, its uh, exchange rate with other uh, global currencies. And by adjusting that, you can bring equilibrium back to your economy. It takes a period to adjust, but nonetheless, you come back relatively quickly, whereas when you don't have that capacity, uh, which a good example of that is in the European Union, where you have a, a bunch of countries that are tied to one currency, yet the, the local realities of each country are very different, you don't have the ease with which to do that. And so that's a great thing about free-floating currencies, but they have to float freely from the outset. And trying to maintain currency pegs is very, very difficult. And, and really, this is this all began a series of currency devaluations and financial crises throughout the 1990s, um, going from the Mexican peso uh, devaluation uh, leading into the Asian financial crisis. And uh, Alexander, do you want to give some color to that before I continue?
2: Yeah, so I mean, you can uh, I'll throw it back to you uh, shortly here. but obviously, uh, as you mentioned, whenever you're trying to have a foot in both camps where you're trying to have a pegged currency and a free-floating currency at the same time, uh, as the old saying goes, you can't suck and blow simultaneously. So uh, you end up creating a uh, great difficulty within uh, within your financial system. And so, as you said, this eventually uh ended up leading to the 1997 Asian financial crisis which went by many different names the Asian contagion the Thai bat devaluation uh many of which are are all under the same umbrella and that there was a uh a significant destabilization of the uh of the Thai bat which was the currency in uh in Thailand and then also in uh, a couple of other Asian countries so why don't you pick it up Dad, and and tell us a little bit about what happened.
3: So let's let's uh, get a little bit of background. Um, as we are all aware, uh, the uh, Japanese economic miracle took place uh, beginning in the early '60s, as they became an export powerhouse, uh, principally to the United States. And uh, this this economic miracle of a of a of a country's economy that was um, very far behind the developed world was what the Asian countries were trying to emulate. In the 19 late 80s and uh, early 1990s, so uh, Thailand, the Philippines, Malaysia, uh, they were, all, and South Korea were all trying to repeat that miracle economic recovery that uh, Japan did in the se- 60s and 70s and into the 1980s. Uh, but in order to do that, they had to create some type of stable platform for uh, with which uh, foreign economies could trade with, and they needed a, a reliable currency. So once again, they pegged their currencies to the U.S. dollar at fixed exchange rates. Uh, but when you do that, you have to maintain a foreign uh, currency reserves. You have to be careful as to how much credit you offer internally within your domestic economy. The, the country itself, the government has to be careful with how much credit they take on. And inevitably, uh, these countries uh, essentially uh, took on too much credit uh, privately, publicly, and eventually speculators saw the imbalance and began to attack those currencies and uh, the speculators would be uh, people trading on the on the commodities exchange on in in the in the uh, foreign exchange currencies. And uh, eventually, the, the countries were, could not maintain those exchange rates, so they had to let go, allow a devaluation to take place, even though they made some bold and brave statements throughout the period saying, we're going to maintain our, our exchange rate, uh, we're going to defeat the speculators, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. Uh, they were unable to do that. And so, uh, an adjustment took place, and those countries had to experience uh, an economic downturn to reset their their standard of living at lower levels, uh, while the exchange rate uh, created the environment to rebalance the economy. And the interesting thing is that uh, that rebalancing did eventually take place. Those economies did recover dramatically over the course of the ensuing decade. And today they have become uh, very strong uh, countries in terms of their economic profiles, But that destabilization in the 1997-98 period bled into two other events along the same lines, Uh, the next one being uh, Russia and long-term capital management. So the implications of the Asian financial crisis manifested in the financial markets in the month of October of 1997, uh, where this uh, the uh, unraveling of, of the events overseas began to impact the North American markets in early October. And by the end of October, on October 27th, there was a, a, a washout event, a day where the market fell over 7%. So the peak to trough decline was just under 14% during the month of October of 1997. Uh, the market began to recover from that point into the end of 1994, but it didn't get past its prior peak until the following March of 1998, at which point, uh, the events started to uh, affect other countries around the world. And with that, and uh, not to mention a a big hedge fund in the United States. So with that, I'm going to ask Alec Jenner to jump in and provide some color on on uh, long term capital management.
2: Right. So long-term capital management was a hedge fund that existed in the 1990s. Their uh, peak years were from 1994 to 1998. And, and their main strategy was to find pairs of bonds and uh, capitalize on differences in the spread between the bonds uh, using a convergence strategy. And the, the, the fund itself was run by Ivy League graduates who had been on Wall Street for many years and had separated off to create their own hedge fund that was supposed to generate uh, superior returns. So uh, with that, I'll, I'll flip it back to you, Dad.
3: Okay, thank you. Uh, so this was a very sophisticated pool of money. Uh, the minimum entrance was $10 million. There was restrictions on how much you could take out. You had to be committed for a three-year period. And when you were able to take out money, it was uh, very, it was restricted in terms of the dollar amount. So uh, clearly, the kind of people who invested in this hedge fund were extremely successful professional athletes, uh, wealthy people from other walks of life uh, who could afford to park $10 million without a problem, not worry about it. And so this is all going very well. And in fact, during the Asian financial crisis, their, their strategy was very effective and they turned a nice profit for their investors. Unfortunately, uh, what happened eventually in 1998, as the the Asian financial crisis crisis was playing itself out, we also had the nascent uh, Russian Federation emerging from the Soviet Union, trying to right-size itself in terms of its economic circumstances. And having been the center of the Soviet Union empire previously to that, Russia was trying to maintain stability with its peripheral states, by offering to uh, trade with them extensively. Unfortunately, uh, Russia did not have uh, the hard currency it required to to always pay for uh, the exports from these countries. And it began having difficulty maintaining the value of the ruble. Now, long-term capital management did not have, uh, uh, did not factor in a Russian debt default. And when they tried to, to cover or to to provide some cover for their exposure and they were seeking to buy um, u.s treasuries Uh, unfortunately for them uh, but fortunately for uh, the united states uh, the u.s government for a brief point in its history had actual fiscal sanity take over and they were running a surplus and the number of treasuries being issued by the by the government in the second half of the 1990s had begin begun to dwindle so the uh The the limited supply created a a quick decline in in interest rates on treasuries, uh, which was uh, beneficial for the U.S. economy, but uh, not very beneficial for for others. So inevitably, uh, Russia could not sustain its exchange rate any longer, and it uh, defaulted on its debt in uh, August of 1998. And uh, that's when things really turned bad for the financial markets in uh, between August and October of 1998, the US market as measured by the S&P 500 fell nearly 23%. And I remember that uh, specifically uh, uh, during that summer, uh, the dramatic decline and the biggest part of the decline occurred uh, toward the end of August in the final days of August. And uh, that was very dramatic. I I remember it specifically Uh, a lot of clients were calling in trying to uh, figure out what was going on. There was a lot of fear and uh, of course, we, we said the things that we always say, which is uh, these events will unfold and uh, the market will right-size itself in time. You have to be prudent and should take advantage of uh, declines in market values to, to buy at lower prices. Uh, nonetheless, it did instill a lot of fear over a period of three to four months. However, the recovery did begin in late in uh, late October of that year. And uh, that was the um, early stages of the dot-com bubble and uh, how uh, the market began to run up, run up, I should say, dramatically during that period. At the same time, the U.S. central bank began cutting interest rates in late September uh, through to the end of November. There's three interest rate cuts of a quarter point each, uh, 75 basis points altogether, and that provided the liquidity required by the financial market. Uh, in order to allow the the, the stock market to t- begin recovering, the fact that long-term capital uh, uh, was buying uh, treasuries at the time also contributed to pushing down the the uh, interest rates. So uh, that was a period that spawned the dot-com bubble, and uh, we had a big run in the stock market until until the end of the 1990s.
2: Well, before we get into the uh, the dot com bubble, I think there's a couple of things that we still need to touch upon with uh, the long term capital management failure. Uh, the one thing is that uh, eventually the strategy, because they started taking uh, increasingly uh, risky and aggressive bets by uh, leveraging uh, their portfolio, they started uh, they they ended up getting uh, caught in a situation where they were in debt in the neighborhood of uh, several hundred million dollars. And so uh, when they uh, when the fund was uh, basically illiquid, they were forced to or the uh, central bank uh, decided to bail out uh, long term capital management. And it was a a consortium of uh, several of the investment banks on Wall Street who provided liquidity to uh, to bail out the institution. And uh, while that in and of itself is uh, is significant, I think what's more significant and uh, what perhaps provided a little bit of uh, foreshadowing here. Uh, was the uh, the central bank's uh, willingness and the uh, Wall Street's willingness to step in and and bail out these financial institutions for taking uh, excessive risks in the market? And what it did is it created a situation of moral hazard. And we've uh, many people have probably heard that term bandied about in uh, in the media. But what moral hazard essentially is is that it creates an opportunity or creates incentive for institutions to take on more risk. With the comfort of knowing that if they do and it doesn't go well they will be bailed out as opposed to facing the uh, free market consequences of uh, having to fail and so when that ended up happening in 1998 became a foreshadowing of what would come in uh the 2007 to through to 2009 financial crisis I, but we'll park that for now
3: i i point out um that in, as that event was unfolding, uh, uh, when the central bank came in uh, got involved in the bailout of long-term capital management, there was a very, uh, how can I put it, a very dramatic weekend where the uh, central uh, the New York Fed uh, put together the consortium of the Wall Street bankers and uh, uh, to uh, create the the bailout along with the help of the the. US. central bank. The amount of debt was actually quite massive. I think it was just under 400 billion dollars, and uh, they they ended up selling long-term capital management to consortium. Ninety uh, percent of the uh, long-term capital management was sold in exchange uh, for that uh, funding. And eventually, uh, when they liquidated the assets over the uh, period of the next ensuing three to three years or so, they did eventually pay that back. But um, you're absolutely correct that the moral hazard of uh of allowing the, the central bank to get involved to uh, protect private interests uh did set a bad uh, uh, example now Warren Buffett actually did um on that weekend offer to buy long-term capital management at a very discounted price and yeah. they refused his offer uh in uh, and pursued the uh the other strategy instead
2: yeah I, I apologize I said uh, several hundred million before it was uh, several hundred billion with a B. Uh and yes, he did offer to buy them out. I believe he offered them 250 million, if I'm not mistaken, in order to buy out uh their their troubles. And uh obviously, as you said, they turned that down. Uh, but one thing to uh to note, uh going back to the uh uh the notion of foreshadowing is one of the companies that was involved in the bailout was Lehman Brothers. Uh, they provided hundred million dollars. And Lehman Brothers in uh, the oh eight oh nine or 07209 uh, financial crisis was actually uh, one of the ones who was allowed to fail, and Lehman Brothers was very surprised when they were not rewarded with the same courtesy that uh, long term capital management and others were afforded when uh, when they went uh, belly up. But uh, as I said, we'll we'll get into more detail about that later, and for now we'll uh, we'll stick with where we are, which is in the late nineteen nineties and moving into the dot com bubble and. Uh, just to try and tie together what we what we covered so far, Dad, I just want to uh, run a quick thread through everything. And that's, you know, starting with the Mexican uh, peso devaluation through to the uh, uh, the Thai bat uh, devaluation and then through to the uh, Russian uh, economic crisis. Can you just quickly uh, in a couple of sentences just tie together what the central bank response was to each one of those events?
3: So the the, um, the U.S. Uh, coordinated with the IMF to provide bailout money to the uh, Mexican government in 1994-95. And obviously, within the IMF bailout comes a, a, a laundry list of conditions. But throughout the late 1990s, uh, the, move, the major <clears throat> moves of the Central Bank of the U.S., obviously, we, we discussed the 1994, where they doubled interest rates from 3% to 6%. Uh, But then in 1995-96, they cut interest rates three times, uh, a quarter percent each time, uh, which fueled the capital markets further, but it was a relatively uh, stable time in the capital markets in 95-96. 1997, uh, the interest rates were increased just a little bit, a quarter point one time, March 1997, really unrelated to the Asian financial crisis. But it was the September to November 1998 period when you had uh, long-term capital management and the Russian crisis unfolding. That's when the central bank really got involved and cut rates three times for a total of three quarters of a percent to try and provide liquidity to the financial system. Right. So th- and- that, was, that was the Fed's uh, actions. And in addition, I, I note that uh, in the final months of 1999 and the second half of 1999, uh, because conditions had improved, the central bank began raising rates again.
2: Right. Before we get to that rate raise, though, it's important to understand that how the uh, the rate cuts affected the market and specifically the tech market. And as we've discussed many times with, uh, with clients and prospective clients, when the market tries to value a specific uh, company, what it does is it forecasts the free cash flow that the company is going to generate in the future and discounts it back to the present in order to come up with a valuation for the company right now, today. The discount rate that they use is a combination of the cost of capital for the company, the or the cost of equity and the cost of debt. So when the central bank raises or lowers the cost of debt, they are raising or lowering the discount rate, which affects the value of the cash flows, which are being discounted to the present. I know that's a fairly technical financial or mathematical definition, but it's important to understand because it impacts how growth companies are affected specifically and uh, as in in the late 1990s as uh, we do have today tech companies are the ones who are the most impacted by the changes and fluctuations in interest rates because most of their value is derived from cash flows that are going to occur in the future we have an expectation that most of their value occurs several years from now or in some cases decades from now and so discounting those cash flows back to the present means that they are more susceptible to changes in interest rates. So when interest rates are low, you're discounting by a smaller number. So the value goes higher and when the interest rates are higher. You're discounting by a larger number. The value of the company drops. And so in the late 1990s, you had a run up on tech companies because the low interest rates, the speculation over how we were going to move into more of an integrated open uh, uh, information uh, economy, which obviously we did eventually move into, uh, by way of the internet and so a lot of companies who were associated with the internet or associated with the technology industry saw their valuation skyrocket over a very short period of time and so with that I'll uh, I'll turn it over to you dad to uh, talk about uh what ended up happening just before the uh the interest rates got raised in uh, in the late 90s and how that affected the market
3: so so uh, thanks for that explanation and the the uh, uh To bring it back to the the person on the street, uh, throughout the 1990s, uh, because of the fact that you had all these Asian economies trying to replicate the success of Japan, there was uh, uh, a large push by uh, companies in the mutual fund industry to promote emerging markets mutual funds, saying this is the next big growth area of the world, you gotta take advantage. So there was a lot of money put into emerging market funds in the 1990s. And as we explained already, the timing couldn't have been worse. Uh, so a lot of people got hurt with that. uh then we had the the, the run in the uh, late 1990s with uh technology and and the narrative at the time was that it was investing in the new economy versus the old economy and valuation metrics for uh, old economy stocks had to be adjusted for new economy stocks and uh profits didn't matter anymore only top line revenue growth was important and and this is the conversation that was being had in the last uh, two years of the 1990s. And uh, people lost their minds. Companies that had no material business uh, were being valued in excess of companies that had been around for decades and had uh, real profits. And so there was a dislocation between reality and and perception. Uh, So Warren Buffett's uh, Berkshire Hathaway stock, which is essentially a financial services holding company, uh, its stock began to lose value in the late 1990s. And by uh, in the final uh, two years of the 1990s, its stock actually declined, uh, uh, underperformed the, uh, the the market, the S and P 500 by uh, nearly 60 percent. It was down 48 while the market was up. I don't remember the exact numbers, but suffice it to it was say, up that, significantly. That, yeah, it was it was uh, a 60 percent difference, and the the the. The commentary you'd get in the financial arena was that oh well warren buffett is old he doesn't know what he's doing anymore he he uh, he's lost his touch and um you know he he's an old economy investor he's not a new economy investor and so you you can't invest with warren buffett any longer uh, and you got to go with uh, tech stocks but uh what unfolded was that you had the dramatic decline in the early 2000s in the tech market the dot-com bubble burst um for a variety of rate, uh, reasons and uh, not the least of which was uh, a rising interest rate environment during that period now, uh,
2: pa- can i pause you for a second dad sure yeah go ahead just one thing to uh to mention you know you had touched upon uh, some of the astronomical valuations that were occurring part of that was a um a lack of uh nuance or a, uh an over exuberance if you will when valuing the the tech companies that were coming on board So companies that had anything to do with the internet or anything to do with technology, as I mentioned, were uh, receiving these astronomical valuations, in part because the financial markets didn't really know how to value them. So instead of valuing companies as we typically do by looking at earnings and profits and free cash flows, they started, uh, a lot of these companies didn't have that because they're growth companies, because they were startups, they were just uh, coming onto the market there was no way to use those traditional metrics in order to value them. And so we started coming up with, or the industry started coming up with, all these new and innovative ways to try and allocate a value to these organizations. So what were those valuation metrics? We talk about things like price to sales, uh, price to clicks, price to views, price to uh, any number of different uh, metrics that would specifically relate to some underlying uh, statistic that that particular company would have. And what ends up happening with that is it becomes a very, uh, those are not solid baseline metrics and and they do not belie the true financial strength of the, uh, or weakness of the, of the company that is being valued. And so you had a lot of companies that were valued on the basis of essentially nothing. And then when uh, the market got pricked, those companies were the ones who fell the fastest. Uh, I'm I'm thinking of companies like pets.com. For example, it was, uh, you know, the notion that you could uh, you were going to buy and sell pets over the Internet was uh, something that obviously never really uh, never really took hold. But anyway, I'll throw it back to you, Dad. So tell us a little bit about uh, what ended up pricking that market eventually in uh, at the end of 2000 or the beginning of uh, March of 2000.
3: Before I get to that, just uh, going back to the Warren Buffett illustration. So uh, Berkshire Hathaway from the uh, beginning of 1999 until early 2000 declined by about 70%. Meanwhile, the uh, U.S. market went up by about 20 uh, odd percent. So the difference from in the last two years of the 1990s, the difference in performance between Berkshire and the S&P was 60%, with the S&P up 48 and Berkshire down about 11 So very, very uh, tumultuous. Now, the thing I, that I recall that uh, caused the the pricking of that bubble were two, twofold. Uh, one interest rate, the central bank interest rate started to go up again in late 1999 and early, early 2000. Um, oh, the other thing that we didn't mention is uh, leading up into the uh, in the final two years of 1999 was also the whole Y2K phenomenon. Mm-hmm. So, this is when our, uh, the uh, a lot of people were concerned that the fact that computers are not going to recognize the change of the millennia going from 1999 to 2000s and confuse computers, and airplanes were going to fall out of the sky, and elevators were going to crash to the ground in office buildings. People were scared. Everyone's buying new computers, everyone's updating their software. And that contributed to the run up in the valuations for some software companies in that period, not the least of which was Microsoft. So a lot of companies including hardware companies benefited from that whole um uh, rebuild of infrastructure or technological infrastructure in the late 1990s and um and and so all that contributed to to the excess valuations but what happened in early 2000 is uh the United States government uh decided to investigate Microsoft for um for antitrust its, uh, antitrust thank you antitrust uh, practices And uh, that essentially was uh, the bell being rung uh, for the end of the dot-com bubble. And the market started to decline uh, with that announcement and ended up uh, going down in the early 1990s over a a very long period of almost Early 2000s, you mean. Sorry, early 2000s by about 55%. Um, But then there was other contributing factors. So we had uh, corporate malfeasance in Enron and WorldCom, uh, both being caught with accounting scandals which also brought down one of the globe's biggest accounting firms Arthur Anderson uh, where they uh, fudged their books and did not report accurately what their profits were. they were hiding money and this uh, coupled with the uh, uh, with 911 uh, uh, and uh, and an economic recession that hit, uh, all of this brought down the stock market very gradually over a three-year period by about 55, sorry, 50 and a half percent, which uh, was extraordinarily difficult to endure. Uh, having meetings with clients, now mind you, our clients were never 100% invested in the in the stock market; they were in typically balanced portfolios, so the impact on them was probably half as much. But nonetheless, it's still a significant decline in value, and it's very difficult for people to psychologically tolerate it. Yeah, and uh, and in fact, over the decade of the of the first ten years of the of uh, the new millennia, if you had invested a hundred dollars in the American stock market on Jan one two thousand, by the end of that decade, you would still have had hundred dollars, and that's how bad uh, the two thousand the first decade of two thousands were for the market overall.
2: Yeah, and and one thing just to uh, to add to that in terms of causes, as we as we briefly touched upon, there was the. The raising of interest rates under Alan Greenspan at that time, uh, which started to uh, erode the value of some of these companies. The other thing that happened that uh, doesn't get discussed very much was when you have these growth companies, these uh, startups, a lot of times when they go public, it is an opportunity for the owners or the creators of the, uh, of the company to get their money out, uh, to uh, basically capitalize or uh, crystallize, I should say is a better term. A portion of the equity that they have tied up in the organization. Now, what ends up happening, though, is when you uh, when you go public, a lot of time the key stakeholders have a lockup period uh, in which they are not allowed to exit uh, their positions uh, for a period of time. So usually, it's about six month period after the initial public offering. What some people did, and uh, one of them uh, was Sir John Templeton, a uh, famous uh, investor who was the uh, founder of uh, Templeton, and uh, which later became uh, Franklin Templeton Investments, uh, ended up uh, shorting many of the dot-com stocks at the peak of the bubble where, during what he called temporary, temporary insanity and a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. And he shorted stocks just before the expiration of the lockup periods, uh, and which were generally, as I mentioned, six months after the uh, initial public offerings or IPOs. And so he correctly anticipated many dot-com company uh, executives were going to sell their shares as soon as they could And the large scale selling would force the prices downwards. And so that's exactly what ended up happening is a lot of these companies, uh, in addition to the fact that they didn't actually have any real earnings to substantiate their valuations, as well as the uh, other factors that we mentioned, uh, put a lot of downward pressure on their stock price. And so we had this precipitous drop in the uh, stock market for a lot of these companies who didn't have uh, the value to be able to sustain the prices that they were trading at. And at the same time, we're going to be negatively affected by affected by those other uh, those other economic factors so
3: just just to elaborate a little bit further um, and to continue the story of warren buffett I, as i mentioned uh, in the late 1990s people were looking down upon warren buffett and his age and his uh, uh, underperformance for an extended period of over two years but once the bubble was pricked and uh, technology stocks began to collapse and by the way the 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 full, I think the NASDAQ was down, peaked trough, roughly uh, 75% or so. It was it was a huge, huge collapse. Uh, in some cases, 90%, and many companies went bankrupt. But during that uh, ensuing period from uh, March of 2000 for the next two years, uh, Berkshire Hathaway actually went up 75%, while the S&P dro- dropped 14.5%, the difference there of 90%. So uh, all of a sudden, people realized perhaps Warren Buffett wasn't so stupid after all. <laughs> and uh, through the entirety of the period from uh, the last two years of 1990s to the first two years of the 2000s, the war, uh, Berkshire Hathaway stock uh, had no correlation or very little correlation with the stock market. It zigged when the stock market zagged. Uh, but at the, the end of that four-year period, Berkshire was ahead 56%, while the S&P was ahead only 26% for a difference of roughly 30% in uh, Warren Buffett's favor. So sometimes you you just have to, uh, I shouldn't say sometimes, at all times, you need to understand what you're investing in. Don't just go by what numbers you hear uh, of late and and allow yourself to be influenced. You need to understand what it is you're investing in and make sure that it's uh, of high quality.
2: To give further context to that, the, uh, the NASDAQ from 1995 to uh, March of 2000 had risen 800% and then it subsequently gave back almost all of that that return it dropped 740% uh from that of the value that it had created from 1995 it gave almost the entirety of that back uh in the following correction and so uh it just goes to show and it, it speaks to what we mention a lot of times uh to both clients and prospects which is you can't go chasing rainbows you know everybody wants to chase whatever the hot stock is you have to have a well constructed portfolio that is well thought out and uh, invested in companies that are uh, viable businesses and in industries which are going to have stable and long-term demand as opposed to just chasing whatever the uh, the latest trend may be and so uh with that i think uh i'm just going to transition it for to our last topic which is the uh the global financial crisis uh which occurred in the uh the late 2000s as i mentioned the 2007 to 2009 period and uh, but in the lead up to that, Dad. So as a result of the um, uh, of what happened with the dot com bubble, uh, if I'm not mistaken, we had a another series of cuts in the interest rates, yeah. which so... then created another uh, bubble. But this time, the bubble was created in the housing market. And with that, I'll I'll pass it back to you.
3: Uh, Thank you, Alexander. So, as you know, that interest rates were being increased in the late 90s, early 2000s. Once the economy uh, uh, fell into recession and it persisted, the central bank was forced to aggressively cut interest rates again. This time, they went far deeper uh, and ended up uh, going all the way down to a 1% central bank rate. And uh, when you do that, it encourages people to borrow money, and uh, this time people borrowed money and started buying housing. Uh, now, this wasn't unique to the United States. It was happening here in in Canada as well, but it was happening throughout the world when you get low interest rates. So you had a buildup of uh, housing prices uh, throughout the middle part of the 2000s and into 2007, interest rates were initially set at 1%, but they were about to come due and for rollover in 2007, 2008, and that's when the trouble began now if you recall we were um uh, we're on vacation in san diego in 2005 mm-hmm. which was about uh let's see we we're about three years removed from the bottom of the market the market had been recovering quite nicely and uh we were in la jolla which is a, a, a probably the nicest uh, one of the nicest places in the united states it's a suburb just to the north of san diego and i was walking around uh admiring all the beautiful real estate and just out of curiosity i decided to go into a, a real estate office so uh, i the office was empty except for a, a sole receptionist and uh, beautiful offices by the way very well decorated and i asked the reception i said so what uh houses go for around here in this neighborhood um not knowing how silly i probably sounded to her since i, I wasn't a local and didn't have a a, a a grasp of what was going on in san diego and she says, oh, here's our our, uh, our listing book. And this book was the size of uh, what people used to call the telephone book. So it was about two inches tall. And it was done in color. It was very beautiful. I started flipping pages. And this is, keep in mind, 2005. So we're talking about nearly 20 years ago. So flipping pages, and I'm looking at house prices, $10 million. 12 million, 15 million, 25 million. And, and, my hair, my, that's when my hair started to fall out by the way. Um, <laughs> just, just, mm-hmm. I, I couldn't, mm. I couldn't believe it. And, uh, not wanting to sound, uh, out of place and foolish. I said, so, uh, do you provide financing? <clears throat> and, uh, her response was, oh, yes, we'll, we'll provide you financing. In fact, uh, we'll finance you 110% of the market value of the house so you can buy furniture. And that's when my head fell, rolled off my shoulders and onto the floor. And I couldn't believe what she just said, because coming from Canada, where you needed a certain down payment and you had to meet a lot of uh, financial requirements up front to I can walk in off the street, pick a house. Get 110% financing so I can decorate it and then pay for it with a 1% mortgage rate, which was like, uh, in essence, a 99-year amortization with the uh, just you're essentially paying. um, All your payments are to capital and uh, there's virtually no interest. And at that point, I should have been very suspicious of what was unfolding. Unfortunately, I didn't clue in immediately. Um, And a couple of years later, uh, we reached a peak. With the uh, with the housing um, valuations, meanwhile, this new um, methodology of financing had developed called securitization, where companies that initiated the 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 debt or the mortgages would then package them up and resell them <clears throat> to third parties for the cash flow that the mortgages generated, and that released their balance sheet to to lend out more money. And this was going on and on and on, and a, a bunch of companies got involved in this business, including Bear Stearns and Lehman Brothers and um, and a, a bunch of other large uh, mortgage companies. Uh, there's a one really big one I forget the name of, but anyway, uh, they they all got their hands on these securitized loans, and they were using them as collateral to lend and lend and lend. So we, essentially, we had a a liquidity bubble. So brewing.
2: just to just to put a name to that, those. Those are called collateralized debt obligations, uh, and the ones that are specifically used using uh, housing instruments or mortgages are called mortgage-backed securities (MBS). And uh, that uh, cross-selling of those uh, of those securitized uh, uh, positions, those are those securitized uh, uh, mortgages, is what created the interconnected web that ultimately uh, led to a significant. uh, I don't want to call it collapse, but pretty close to collapse in the financial system. We'll call it a, a freezing of liquidity during the. That's a collapse. I
1: was going to say, yes. I'm I, I just going to jump in here and listen to you guys. I Listen, would call it a collapse. Okay, yeah. So, and so, so, so if this is trying to the, soften the blow. All right. Yeah, no, so no, then, no. If this, if this is the equivalent the, the pictures of pictures of people being let out of Goldman Sachs who didn't have work, and people being let out of Lehman who had so, no longer had a desk. So, then, so,
3: so, so, illiquidity in the financial system is the equivalent of no oil left in your engine. Your engine just stops turning. Well and, said. And, and and so this was uh, this is a this was a debacle and uh and and this brings us to uh and how it was uh, affecting me at the time and our clients and in in the late uh 2007 we were having meetings uh, with portfolio managers with various large mutual fund companies and uh one of them commented the thing that keeps me up at night is these uh these futures contracts and option contracts and uh, uh securitized mortgages and we're not sure how they're being valued and uh but in spite of that, uh, they they too didn't see uh, what was about to unfold in in the following year, and yeah. 2008 did not begin well. Uh, but <laughs> it accelerated uh, very rapidly after the spring. You know, and here in Canada, our market held up much longer because we were principally um, resource based economy, and uh, oil prices started to to go up. And so our stock market was uh, spared uh, the initial impact, but once the once it hit the fan in uh, September, October, uh, then everything went down uh, together. And well, th-
2: let's pause that and just explain yeah. how it hit the fan specifically. So we've we've established that we have these the interconnection of all these financial institutions because they have packaged together all these mortgages for these uh, homes that uh, people can ill afford. And they have packaged them together and sold them in exchange for the cash flows, as you've mentioned, from those mortgages. But what ended up happening was uh, as rates started to go up and renewals started to come due, people couldn't afford these mortgages that they were paying. And so they started to default. And so when you start to default on the mortgage, what ends up happening? Well, there's no more cash flows. Well, if there's no more cash flows, then the mm-hmm. company who's purchased these mortgage-backed securities is not getting any cash. If they don't get any cash, they have no Cash to then turn around and lend out to other to other uh, borrowers, and so you had this snowballing effect because it was happening everywhere across the uh, across the financial markets, where all these institutions were left holding the bag for all these mortgages that were of low quality. Part of the blame lays with the uh, the credit rating institutions who didn't properly value and assess the risk of these. Of these assets. I see Bill
1: (laughs) nodding vigorously over there. Vigorously agreeing. I mean, you know what made it even worse, John and Alex, is that these loans were mixed in with other solid loans. So there were a lot of these debt obligation these debt instruments that were sown with bad, bad seed in the middle of, of, of of the portfolio so that people didn't know. Yeah. And so it would have been easy if you, had to, oh, that's a bad, that's a bad portfolio. Don't buy that debt instrument. That wasn't that easy. It was sewn together with other good mortgages. Yeah. And that's what made this whole thing so much more complicated. And why I say, like, I had to jump in and say earlier, it was a collapse because yeah. it was disastrous.
2: It's like money laundering. Like you've layered in the good money with the bad. And so uh, you it becomes very difficult to discern, as you mentioned, which is the which are the good loans and which ones are the bad ones or which ones are the high quality instruments? Because they get rated, you know, from AAA all the way down right. to junk status. And if you're interweaving low quality loans in with the uh, the AAA rated assets and you still slap a label on them and say it's AAA, well, that's not true. And so you've priced them according to the fact that they're very low risk. But in in reality, there are, there's a lot more risk than uh, the price would suggest. And so they're overpriced. And anyway, that led to a a subsequent decline in the uh, in the financial markets, a collapse, as you mentioned, and the result of which was uh, several institutions ended up going uh, bankrupt, most notably the Lehman Brothers uh, institution was allowed to go bankrupt while Bear Stearns was bailed out by the uh, uh, by the central bank and uh, and a number of other institutions who failed were uh, were purchased and uh, bought up by other organizations. Merrill Lynch, for example, was bought up by Bank of America, if I'm not mistaken. Right. Yep. Um, and who, so, who
1: underwent a period of uncertainty for a while because of the mortgage because of the package, the debt security packages that were in all of the portfolios. And if you'll remember, regulators were like, "We got to sort all of this out." And so, Bank mm-hmm. of America's valuation in the market suffered for a long time after buying Merrill Lynch
3: uh, to get back to these investment banks that collapsed under the weight of the this uh, scandal uh yet Hank Paulson who was the I think the Secretary of the Treasury back during that period but he was a, a former Goldman Sachs uh Wall Street banker and uh, so why is it Lehman Brothers was allowed to collapse and Bear Stearns was allowed to be purchased by J.P. Morgan at a dramatic discount, so you had personalities from uh, Wall Street, uh, perhaps getting uh, vindication or competitive, uh, uh, getting competitive with one another, and uh, allowing a, a company that was still viable to to completely freeze up. Uh, so that was uh, arbitrary and subjective as uh, uh, selecting which company was going to be allowed to fail. But inevitably, they had to step in um, to, to do something. Yeah. And um, they did provide uh, the liquidity that the financial markets required and in interest rates uh, after being raised from 1% at the depth of the early 2000s dot com bubble collapse. They had fallen 1%, but from roughly 2002. 2007, interest rates started to gradually come back up. And by 2007, they were coming up to, I don't have the number in front of me, but say 5%. So mortgages that were initially at 1% had to be renewed at 5 and people couldn't afford to renew at 5 yeah. And And that's what that uh, raising of interest rates in, uh, in 2007 uh, contributed to the pricking of the second uh, bubble being the housing bubble
2: yeah.
3: uh, in the first um, uh, decade of the millennia. Uh, so right. once again the central bank had its fingers fingerprints all over the body and um you know the central bank was created in 20 and sorry in 1913 uh by an act of government and uh the current it,
2: iteration of the central bank this is i believe the third or yes, fourth
3: the third this is the third iteration of the central bank of the united states it it has its fingerprints on every recession and depression from 1913 to the present Including the Great Depression of nineteen uh, of the nineteen thirties, and we'll cover that topic in a future uh, podcast.
1: Pay attention to the policies and actions of the central bank. is <laughs> is a central theme that runs through the last two episodes. That's fair to say, don't you think, John?
3: It, it is. It is very fair to say, Bill. The other thing I want to mention, and you and I being of a similar generation. Uh, we, we grew up at a time when there was a cold war going on between uh, uh, the West and and uh, the Soviet Union and the argument that was made in the West was that uh, you have to f- uh, function in as a free market and the irony was while we op- operate as a free market on the on uh, with respect to to companies um, fiscal policy um, uh, was, by order of government, and therefore you had to have representatives choose it. But monetary policy has always been uh, contained to a group of 12 to 13 individuals that meet behind closed doors and, and decide when to increase and decrease the supply of money, which has dramatic impacts on economic activity. And the argument we had against the Soviet Union is you cannot have a central pol- uh, centrally coordinated policy, economic policy, provide stability to an economic system. So we're speaking out of both sides of our mouth in the West, saying you can't do it this way, but we're going to do it this way, but in a different way on this side. And so it is a failed the central banking system has uh, demonstrated over 100 years. it was failed uh, to reduce the number of, of uh, economic cycles, which was the original ambition. And uh, we, we've had all these different crises over time. Uh, with that i'll i'll give it back to alexander
2: yeah and so basically to to sum that up or to summarize it's it's a result of the the difficulty instead of allowing market forces to determine the correct time to uh uh, for the market to fluctuate uh, we have individuals who are trying to internalize and interpret and uh and artificially uh, maneuver the market and the problem is the the exact timing of which is uh, virtually impossible for any one person to uh to accurately predict or determine and so what ends up happening is the uh um getting involved in the uh in the in in the fluctuations of the market ends up creating exaggerated waves and and we end up creating more uh more cycles and so what ended up happening following the great financial crisis in 2007-2009 was we had rates cut again to near zero and so when rates get cut obviously we know that uh that positively impacts the stock market and the economy and and so we'll, uh, we'll pause that there. We're going to uh, pick that up in the next episode where we're going to discuss exactly how that unfolded.
3: Uh, Alexander, sorry to interrupt. Before, before we, uh, we close off this episode, I just want to uh, finalize some things that happened in that waterfall collapse in 2008. And the market did not go down. All in one fell swoop by 55%. It fell in waves. In the first wave from uh, November of oh seven to uh, July of oh eight. Uh, was about minus 20%. There was a bit of a recovery, uh, but then it fell in a second wave from September to the uh, middle of October by another 35%. Again, a little bit of a bounce, and then it fell again into March of 2009. Uh, What was really interesting is on October 6th, 2008, specifically the market was in free fall that day. And I knew my clients were going to be very upset. So I walked into a recording studio with a loosely prepared uh, historical data from the 1990-1991 savings and loan crisis. And I started reading off media headlines of that time period from 1990-91. And they eerily sounded like the media headlines of 2008. Mm. So I started reading these off and recording. And and at the end, I said, these headlines I just uh, read to you uh, are from uh, 20 years ago. yeah, uh, almost 20 years ago, from 1990, 91. So this is not new. This has happened before. Uh, we're going to get a recovery eventually. Uh, what you don't want to do right now is be selling into a waterfall decline. If you have money to invest, now is a good time to begin adding to your position. But you definitely don't want to to sell out. And you de- and you want to change. If you're withdrawing money and you're retired, you want to try and uh, reduce the, uh, your, your the amount of withdrawals as much as you can tolerate temporarily until we get our rebound. and uh, and that recording spawned a series of uh, 10 annual recordings I did on October 6th, uh, uh, sh- demonstrating over the course of the following decade how that dramatic event eventually uh, became history and we recovered uh, uh, completely from it.
2: Mm-hmm. And, and reached new highs in the uh, in the stock markets in the uh, subsequent decade. but uh, that's a story for the next episode. And uh, as, we, as we've mentioned, we've covered a lot of history here from uh, the mid-1990s, starting in 1994, through to the end of the 2000s, 2009. And so when we pick back up uh, next week or our next episode, I should say, we're going to start with the uh, the European debt crisis and uh, how the fallout from the financial crisis impacted the uh, the markets. And so with that, I'm going to turn it back over to you, Bill.
1: Yeah, guys, it it is useful to remember as an investor, and it is uh, important for financial advisors, I think, to do what you're doing, which is to remind people investments long term are terrific things, but long term denies the look at short term corrections that, that inevitably and always do happen. And, you know, and, and I would imagine as, as sitting in your chair, it's a little uncomfortable when you have to <laughs> look at clients and go, yeah, we know this is a tough period and it's down 15%, but, you know, if you stay with this, historically, you're going to be fine, which sounds like cold advice, but it's true advice, right?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sometimes you have to be a little bit dispassionate.
1: Well, well, we, we've been
3: doing a lot of handholding and, uh, and studies done by a, a Boston-based firm, Dalbar, have indicated that uh, the uh, psychological biases that affect individuals' decision-making when it comes to money results in roughly a 3.5% difference between the realized results of individual investors and those of their underlying uh, mutual fund portfolios. So uh, that is a significant price to pay, and so yes. uh, there is a significant value to dealing with a, as Alexander said, a dispassionate third party who can put things into context and perspective,
1: so you don't don't make wrong decisions at the wrong time. It's hard. I mean, look, I'm an investor too. I look at my portfolio just like you do and like everybody else does, and it's like, oh, well, that, it's the most difficult thing to do is not to
3: act because yes. as a, so. It, Three years ago, I transitioned away from a financial intermediary into a portfolio manager role. And um, now having full control of when uh, to uh, to trade securities for um, a large group of clients simultaneously, I have uh, a tremendous ability to impact gains and losses through decisions I make. And there are many times when there is a temptation to execute a transaction due to short-term circumstances. And it takes all my years of experience to to at times hold me back and say, no, this is not the right thing to do at this time. This is not our process. The process says to leave it alone. And so we're going to leave it alone. And it is very difficult to do. Uh, sometimes j- to do nothing is often the most difficult thing
1: to do. Amen. Amen. Sometimes there is a time just to push the chair away from the computer and stand up and walk away. I yeah. do hear you. This is a good conversation as always. Guys, uh, I don't want to leave without uh, getting your information out there. If anybody's listening to this and wants to get in touch with you, have further conversations, how do they do it?
2: Yeah, absolutely, Bill. They can uh, reach us at uh, info at medwealth.ca. That's info at med-wealth.ca. You can also visit our website, which is www.medwealth.ca or uh, johnsutos.com. And uh, we are on uh, Twitter and LinkedIn, and they can also uh, reach us by phone. All that information is available on our website.
1: Fantastic. Thank you very much. Listeners, thank you for taking the time to listen to this. We hope you found it useful, instructive, and maybe even a little calming to know that uh, we've been there, done that many, many, many times before. And you should probably remember that before you decide there's something you need to do, as a matter of fact. The one thing you don't need to wait to do is hit the subscribe button. If you're not a subscriber already, please hit it. That way you do not have to remember when or where you heard this this podcast or when it comes out again, because it will be delivered to your listening device. You'll be notified and you won't miss another episode. Thank you so much for listening. On behalf of John and Alex and everybody at MedWealth, I want to thank you for listening. I'm Bill Tucker reminding you, do not wait. Live your best life. Today,
0: thank you. Thank you for listening to Prescribing Prosperity. Visit our website at med-wealth.ca. That's m-e-d-wealth.ca for more information or to connect with us for a consultation. Don't forget to click the follow button to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the hosts and their guests and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of IPC Securities Corporation. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investment advice. Always seek the advice of a qualified and licensed financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment or retirement planning. MedWealth Financial Services can provide a private consultation to help you determine the suitability of any guidance discussed on the show.